Support for the Legislative Gazette comes from New York State United Teachers, a union of professionals standing with more than 600,000 workers in education, human services, and healthcare with the Our Voice, Our Values, Our Union campaign. And United University Professions, representing 37,000 academic and professional employees at SUNY campuses and teaching hospitals across New York State. Frederick E. Cole, President, UUPinfo.org. The New York State Senate, in a full floor vote this week, rejected Governor Kathy Hochul's choice for chief judge with a 39 to 20 vote. The action broke a stalemate between the governor and fellow Democrats in the Senate over whether Hector LaSalle required under the state's constitution a vote by all senators. The Legislative Gazette's Karen DeWitt reports. Ayes 20, nays 39. The nomination fails. It's the first time in recent history that a governor's nominee for chief judge was rejected by the state Senate. Several Republican senators voted yes, but it was not enough to overcome widespread opposition by the majority of Democratic senators, who said LaSalle was too conservative. Senate Judiciary Chair Brad Hoylman-Siegel says LaSalle, based on his record, is not a judge who would look out for the most vulnerable. He says LaSalle's decisions too often sided with the more powerful players in society. And he says after recent actions by the U.S. Supreme Court striking down the abortion rights decision Roe v. Wade and dismantling New York's concealed carry laws, there's no room for ambiguity. The stakes are just too damn high in Washington with the United States Supreme Court overturning our basic rights and liberties and sending more and more of those decisions down to the state courts where this nominee will have a deciding vote. Republican senators who voted for LaSalle, including Senator Andrew Lanza, says LaSalle has built a life and a record that is beyond reproach. I challenge any of you to find anyone who who says or who will tell you that he is not everything that I am saying he is right here, which is one of the most qualified nominees, certainly in my tenure here in the Senate, that has come before us. Lanza says LaSalle was rejected because he refused to bow to the radical left of the Democratic Party. The vote marks the end of a month-long constitutional showdown between Hochul and Senate Democrats. It began in January when the Senate Judiciary Committee voted to reject LaSalle by a 10-2 vote. The Democrats said they were done with the process and the Senate did not need to hold a full vote. That angered Hochul. She said the state's constitution requires a full vote. She hinted that she might file a lawsuit. But as the weeks went by, the governor did not go to court. It was left to Republicans who are in the minority in the Senate to file a lawsuit to try to force a vote. A hearing is scheduled for Friday. The potential that the state's courts could curb the power of Senate leaders to make decisions on the rules of their House may have prompted the Democrats' sudden change of heart. But Senate leader Andrea Stewart-Cousin says that's not the reason why they held the vote. She says she wanted to end what's become a distraction to the important work that needs to be done this session. We have a state to run. The 2023-2024 billion budget is due in six weeks. Senate Minority Leader Robert Ort contends that if it weren't for the lawsuit, the full Senate vote would never have happened. Governor Hochul didn't do anything to make it happen. She nominated him and apparently was willing to let him twist in the wind. We brought a lawsuit. Ort says he does not believe the vote makes the GOP's court action moot. He says he expects the lawsuit to continue.
Governor Hochul, in a statement, says she's glad that the Democrats in the Senate finally acquiesced to holding a full vote on her nominee. Hochul spoke about it earlier in the day, before the vote. I think this is a good outcome to at least let it get to the floor of the Senate. But the governor says the outcome was not based on the merits. Hochul says she will now request a new list of nominees from the state's Judicial Nominating Commission for a new chief judge and start the process all over again. In Albany, I'm Karen DeWitt. listening to the Legislative Gazette, program about New York state government and politics. I'm David Gustina. Legislative Gazette political observer Alan Shartok spoke with New York Governor Kathy Hochul this week about her $227 billion budget proposal, and he begins by asking the governor about the $25 billion she's allocated for affordable housing. Alan, this is a matter of survival for the state of New York. The good news is, is that We have a lot of jobs. Businesses want to come. People want to live here. But if they can't find housing to meet their needs, whether it's that first starter apartment for a young person or affordable housing for someone who needs a little extra help, workforce housing, or someone market rate or luxury housing, if we don't meet that demand, then we will not be able to achieve our full potential because it's a complete reversal of when I was growing up in industrial upstate New York. Plenty of houses, low-cost housing, no jobs. And now the opposite is true, but we have to meet the demand, which is very high. That's why our plan is bold. It's aggressive, but uh, I will never just be looking for the easy answers and the easy path to success. This is going to be challenging, but failure is not going to be an option. We have to be successful in meeting the demand of New Yorkers who want to live here. Well, it's bold, all right, so tell us a little bit more in the details. Well, we're talking about, first of all, setting goals and asking communities from downstate to upstate to, depending on where they are located, to meet certain objectives. For example, upstate, we're asking communities to simply increase their housing stock by 1% over the next three years. They can do that countless ways. They can you know, rezone land that's an old industrial site, a former mall that's now vacant, an old warehouse or a parking lot that's not being utilized to put in, you know, whatever kind of housing they want. But downstate, we're asking there to be a 3% threshold that's places like Long Island and Westchester and New York City that they can meet 3%. And communities that have the luxury, and I call it a luxury of having a train station, in their community, which really increases their property values, increases the connectivity to good-paying jobs. We really want to see what they call transit-oriented development, which is putting housing right next to the station so people don't even need to have a car. They can commute to their jobs and to have many cases just have empty parking lots adjacent to train stations no longer makes sense. So we're asking people to meet these goals, and we're here to help. I know that when you put in new housing, there's associated a cost. I was a town board member for 14 years. So we put $250 million to help the communities with roads and sewers and schools and the other expenses they would incur by meeting these demand, this demand. But I think it's beneficial for all these communities to grow 
So young people who grow up and want to raise their families near the grandparents, you know, they don't have to say goodbye to their kids to another neighboring state where there's more plentiful supply because we have not kept up with Boston, Connecticut, New Jersey, anywhere else in Massachusetts. We are so far behind in building housing stock that that is really to our detriment, and we're starting to see the effects of it now without migration. We are talking to our friend, I hope, Governor Kathy Hochul. Is there any tension between you and the Senate Democratic leadership, specifically Senate Majority Leader Andrea Stewart-Cousins? No, we sat down together for well over an hour, I think almost going on two hours, to talk about our mutual priorities, you know, what the the Senate hopes to accomplish, uh, what the Speaker also hopes to accomplish what my goals are. And so I think it's very clear, and I've, we've seen each other at many events. It's, you know, I would say it's very friendly. So I, I'm very able to compartmentalize different issues. I've been in this business a long time. I've had to work with people throughout life who've uh, not necessarily agreed with me on every issue, but there's other issues where you find common interests. So that, that's really what I think I'm certain that New Yorkers want to occur not to have us driven into our respective corners with our gloves up and ready to fight. They want us to get the job done for them. They, they don't care about all these distractions. I mean, it's important to me to select the chief judge. I have selected an individual. His name is still out there. The Senate can vote on him anytime they want. But that doesn't detract from my ability to, as I did this morning, I hosted a breakfast for all the new members of the Assembly and Senate. They shared their priorities. We talked about my objectives. And we all agreed we're going to work together. So that's how I'm changing the culture here in Albany, that despite the, some of the you know, disagreements and some of them are very serious disagreements, that we can still work together on other issues. And that's, that's how I've changed people's attitudes about their state government. So you're the governor, you're a woman, and Senate Majority Leader Andrea Stewart-Cousins is a woman. Do you think this marks a change in the way our politics are run in New York State? With having two women in leadership positions, absolutely. You know, we, we joke about how, you know, when leader Stuart Cousins was there, was always, you know, you know, she was rising up before she ascended to her position. It was three men in a room, and then it was two men and a woman, and now it's two women and a man. And uh, Speaker, he sees a good sport about it, but, uh, you know, it's, it is a sign that change has finally arrived and that we have more representation from women and, you know, represents communities of color. And that's one of the reasons, you know, I thought Hector LaSalle was also an important uh, individual to put in a high position because he has an exceptional record, but also, you know, letting, you know, people from the Hispanic community know that, you know, we finally, finally broke one of, their, one of their barriers as well in the judiciary. So I, I believe in, you know, supporting individuals, the best qualified, number one, but also increasing diversity. And I have the most diverse administration uh, powered by many women and a lot of smart men as well, and really trying to just make my administration, my cabinet, really you know, truly reflect what New York looks like and where we come from. That's New York Governor Kathy Hochul speaking with Legislative Gazette political observer Alan Chartong. listening to the Legislative Gazette, a program about New York state government and politics. I'm David Gustina.
during their unsuccessful push for unionization last fall, workers at an Amazon warehouse in Rensselaer County sought higher pay and safer working conditions. Months later, the Skodak facility is facing fines as part of a federal investigation. The Legislative Gazette's Lucas Willard has the latest. The U.S. Occupational Safety and Health Administration issued citations at three Amazon warehouses for failing to keep workers safe this month. The citations, part of an investigation with the U.S. Attorney's Office for the Southern District, follow similar actions against three other Amazon facilities in January. OSHA Assistant Secretary for Occupational Safety and Health, Doug Parker, detailed findings in a call with reporters. Our investigations determined warehouse workers are required to perform tasks at a fast pace, including manually lifting items from trailers, removing packages from a conveyor and stacking them from floor to ceiling, and other tasks that require workers to work in awkward positions that make them prone to injuries. OSHA is proposing nearly $47,000 in penalties for the violations at the Skodak site and two others in Florida and Idaho. Amazon is appealing the decision. WAMC spoke with two employees who were on the organizing committee seeking to unionize the Rensselaer County site, which employs more than 800 people. Tia Lianza, age 61, has been working at Amazon for the last year and a half. She says labor in the warehouse can be painful. By the fourth day, my feet are killing me, my, my legs hurt, my hands hurt. Um, and yes, you, you definitely feel the wear and tear as, as the days go on, as your work week goes on. Workplace safety was a key demand during the union drive that failed by a two-to-one margin. 18-year-old Amazon worker Sarah Chowdhury, on the job for about six months, recalled an incident where it took hours to address a spill. This bucket of concrete sealant that was just spilled everywhere. And it took, it took a, about a couple hours just to get a hold of the safety team. During the union campaign, workers complained of injuries from boxes hanging off shelves. Amazon says it has made hundreds of changes based on employee feedback. In a statement to WAMC this week, Amazon said it's cooperating with the federal government in its investigation and takes the health and safety of its employees very seriously. Spokesperson Kelly Nantel said in part the retailer doesn't, quote, believe the government's allegations reflect the reality of safety, end quote, at its sites, and that the company reduced injury rates in the U.S. by nearly 15 percent between 2019 and 2021. OSHA's DART rate provides an index of recordable workplace injuries. According to OSHA, Amazon's national injury rate is 9 per 100 workers, compared with the national average at 4.7. The DART rate for Amazon's Rensselaer County Fulfillment Center is 19.7. Amazon detailed several safety improvements to WAMC, including height-adjustable tables to reduce the need for bending and reaching. Some ladders and conveyor belts have been redesigned, too, as just some examples. Chowdhury says she's noticed some repairs, such as fixing the brakes on the so-called U-boats used to move items around, but she hasn't seen a significant improvement in safety since the union push. I would say it was no improvement because the only improvements to safety that I've really seen were routine maintenance. On pay, Amazon did provide a raise in 2022, but Lianza says workers in Skodak are still making less than those at other warehouses in the area. Amazon thought they were giving us this wonderful, great raise of $1 an hour in, in, during the union campaign, mind you, uh, that, that, oh, we're, oh, yay, we're giving you a pay raise. It's like, 
you should have been paying us $23 to begin with because that's what most warehouse workers are making in this area. Amazon says it does review wages regularly and plans to do so again this year. But a lasting impact of the failed union push, which garnered national attention, is an effect on workplace culture. Months later, Lianza and Chowdhury described lingering tensions between union supporters and opponents. Lianza does not expect ALB1 workers to consider unionizing again soon. But Chowdhury hasn't ruled it out, saying she feels hopeful but realistic. I know it's going to take a lot of time and work and training and, you know, I guess one-on-one conversations with each and every one of our coworkers to really build that collective action, build that sense of community, and so that eventually we can be, you know, strong enough both in numbers and in actual strength, you know, to, to demand these changes and to, and to eventually unionize our warehouse. For the Legislative Gazette, I'm Lucas Willard. Chain pharmacies have been shuttering stores while announcing reductions in services offered and scaling back hours of operation. The Legislative Gazette's Dave Lucas with more. Changes announced by major retailers CVS and Walmart have been attributed to staffing shortages, including the scarcity of licensed pharmacists to manage local outlets. Dr. Lauren Bodie is an assistant professor of pharmacy practice at Albany College of Pharmacy and Health Sciences. She says the issue is not a shortage of pharmacists. Blaming the reductions in in um, inability to adequately staff locations on an overall lack of pharmacists is just not accurate, um, and is somewhat misleading given the like the current state of affairs. Bodie contends that short staffing has led to unfavorable working conditions and, in some cases, burnout for pharmacy staff professionals who are leaving the field. If you look at the national statistics for like pharmacy workforce, there's no indication that there actually is a shortage of pharmacists. What you may be seeing is a shortage of pharmacists who are um, looking to continue on when working conditions are not favorable to providing the kind of care that they want to provide the patients in those pharmacies. And so they may be seeking other employment opportunities, um, whether that's in a different community pharmacy or a different segment of the pharmacy profession altogether. New York State Assembly member John McDonald represents the 108th District. The Democrat is also a licensed pharmacist and owner of Maris Pharmacy, an independent drugstore in Cohoes. What you're seeing with reduction of hours, um, in particular in regards to the chain community pharmacies, is a reflection of maybe the workforce challenges, but also a reflection of the inadequate reimbursement that pharmacies have struggled with for a long period of time. I always portray community pharmacy, whether it's independent or chain pharmacy, as the victims between the battle between the pharmaceutical industry and the prescription benefit manager industry, or PDMs, who manage the drug benefits. And unfortunately, that industry is shrouded in in, in a lack of transparency, to be honest with you, Uh, where everyone's concerned about the price of medications, but there's significant behind-the-curtain trade-offs going on that need to be fully exposed uh, because it's mostly with public dollars. There are other reasons chain pharmacies invoke in defense of cutbacks. In December, CNBC quoted a Walmart official who told the network, rising in-store theft that's often going unchecked by local law enforcement could force Walmart to raise prices or even close some stores. McDonald's says reductions take their toll on pharmacies 
and staff. It's caused a very difficult working condition where there is a lot of pressure for high volume output, which is really not something that is really recommended in healthcare in general. And we know the struggles we've seen in other areas, such as nursing and physicians, with many people leaving the industry. In regards to CVS, particularly, CVS made a conscious decision a year ago saying they're going to shutter a third of their stores throughout the country. CVS recently closed its Central Avenue store in Albany, leaving the low-income neighborhood with one community pharmacy and no convenience or variety store. The Associated Press reports that CVS Health continues to acquire primary care services. CVS Health says it will spend about $10.6 billion to buy Oak Street Health, which runs clinics that specialize in treating Medicare Advantage patients. Last year, CVS paid $8 billion to take over health care provider Signify Health. The retailer chalked up $322.5 billion in revenue for 2022. CVS responded to a request for comment via email, saying in part, We'll be changing our pharmacy hours of operation in about two-thirds of our stores by late March. These changes are part of the regular course of business and are being made to better support our pharmacy teams while optimizing productivity. Our hours of operation changes are not due to staffing concerns. Walmart acknowledged receiving a request for comment for this story, but did not offer one. Bodie says ACPHS is focused on preparing students for a wide range of positions in various segments of the pharmacy profession. In 2021, the college graduated 238 students with pharmacist degrees. About 60% of graduates end up working in retail pharmacies. For the Legislative Gazette, I'm Dave Lucas. You are listening to the Legislative Gazette, a program about New York State government and politics. I'm David Gustina. Mountain Lake PBS in Plattsburgh aired the independent lens documentary Love in the Time of Fentanyl this week. It looks at a supervised drug consumption and safe injection site in Vancouver. In conjunction with the program, the public television station in Plattsburgh hosted a panel discussion on addiction and services in northern New York and what's being done to address the crisis. The Legislative Gazette's Pat Bradley was there and filed this report. Mountain Lake PBS screened the Independent Lens PBS documentary before the panel discussion. You're making the best of what we've got in the middle of a crisis situation where people are dying and we're losing our friends. The panel from across the North Country represented a variety of perspectives on the overdose crisis. Malone Police Chief Chris Primo says the community is experiencing troubling trends in drug use and addiction. I've never seen it as bad as it is right now. We had five fatal overdoses of fentanyl in the last four weeks, one in the village, four outside of the village. Completely unheard of in a small community like ours. We're battling the drug epidemic and it seems like everywhere we turn there's cocaine, 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 and sometimes cocaine laced with fentanyl. But I've never seen so much cocaine as there is now. I talked to one of my friends who's a detective in Plattsburgh, 
and they're seeing the same thing, lots and lots of cocaine. We're actually starting to see some crystal meth, like the real crystal meth as well. The Alliance for Positive Health serves 15 counties in northeastern New York and focuses on harm reduction. Program manager Rhiannon Croy says fentanyl is what typically shows up during their syringe exchanges. We don't see very much heroin. We don't see really any pharmaceutical prescribed medication pills. We're, we're really just seeing a lot of meth, a lot of cocaine, crack, and typically it's always laced with fentanyl. Overdose prevention sites are a controversial concept in the U.S., with two operating in New York City. The Champlain Valley Family Center provides substance abuse treatment, education, and related support programs. Program director Jared Croy says the problem is not safe injection sites, it's the image conjured. It's not really anything but people have a problem with people using drugs, and if I can see it, it's a problem. I run a treatment program, but I also know that most of the people that come to my program will pick back up again. And we have accepted the fact that this is a very difficult thing to overcome. And instead of fighting against that fact, we lean into it. And so it's not about this safe injection site or harm reduction so much as it's about are we being compassionate to people. Chief Primo does not support safe injection sites. Why can't we have a methadone clinic, a suboxone clinic, caseworkers to help these people, and instead of every day, yep, I'm going to go down to the clinic and get high today because I know I'm not going to overdose. I would want to give them the help first before I'd ever want them to sit, go every day and shoot up. And where does the drugs come from? Where are they getting the money for the drugs? I think we can at least try to get them some type of help. MHAB is a life skills recovery center in Plattsburgh. Founder Michael Carpenter says he understands harm reduction, but is not ready to support safe injection sites because of its complexities. If it's safe injection sites, are we opening up safe crack houses? What are we doing about the financial impact of the people who can't necessarily work because OSHA hasn't caught up with the laws that say we're going to allow people to use drugs, but we're not going to allow them to work in manufacturing facilities. You have so many other problems that come into this that are really the stuff we need to be addressing if you're going to do this. The panel discussion and documentary are part of a week of special programming on public television stations across New York next week that will focus on the overdose and addiction crisis. For the Legislative Gazette, I'm Pat Bradley. And that about does it for this week's show. We had help from the New York State Public Radio Network. For copies, call 1-800-323-9262. That's 1-800-323-9262. Ask for program number 2307. Or just listen online at wamc.org or schedule a podcast wherever you get your podcasts. And join us again next week at the same time for more news on New York State government and politics. For the Legislative Gazette, I'm David Gustino.